0: Welcome to the Entertaining Abstracts podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got some really cool stuff for you guys this time around. First and foremost, we have an update on our giant potato named Doug, who was supposedly getting ready to break the world record for the largest potato. But this article came out about a week ago, and it says, Nice try, but no potato for a New Zealand couple's giant potato find, and it came out March 16th, and the author is Nick Perry. When is a potato not a potato? When it's a tuber of a gourd, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. A New Zealand couple who believed they had dug up the world's largest potato in the garden of their small farm near Hamilton have had their dreams turned to mash after Guinness wrote to say that scientific testing had found that it was not, in fact, a potato after all. Colin Craig Brown, who first hit the tuber with a hoe last August when gardening with his wife Donna, said it sure looked and tasted like potato, mind you, but he'd never tasted a gourd tuber either, so he had no point of reference there. But what can you say, said Craig Brown. We can't say we don't believe you because we gave them the DNA stuff. After months of submitting photos and paperwork, the couple got the bad news from Guinness in an email last week. Dear Colin, the email begins, going on to say that sadly the specimen is not a potato and is in fact the tuber of a type of gourd. For this reason, we do unfortunately have to disqualify the application. The couple had named their find Doug, which they took from the spelling of Doug, D-U-G, after the way it was unearthed became something of a local celebrity after the couple began posting photos of it on Facebook with a hat on and even built a cart to tow it around in. An official weigh-in at a local farming store put Doug at 7.8 kilograms, or 17 pounds, equal to a couple of sacks of regular potatoes or one small dog. The existing Guinness record still stands, a 2011 monster from Britain that weighed in at just under 5 kilograms. Craig Brown remains a big believer in Doug, though, who still sits in their freezer. I say good day to him every time I pull out sausages, he says. He's a cool character. Whenever the grandchildren come around, they say, can we see Doug? Doug is the destroyer from down under, Craig Brown added. He's the world's biggest not-a-potato. Craig Brown said he's not done yet with chasing the potato wrecker. Doug was self-sown, but Craig Brown said that with all his subsequent research into giant potatoes... He's ready to try and deliberately grow a record-breaking monster next season. And this time, it will definitely be a potato. Well, good luck to him, right? The next article I found is called Octopuses Have Learned to Make Use of Ocean Litter Study Find. no author on this particular article, but it says, whether it's mimicking venomous creatures or shooting jets of water at aquarium light switches to turn them off, octopuses are nothing if not resourceful. Now, an analysis of underwater images suggests octopuses are increasingly using discarded bottles, cans, and other human rubbish as shelter or as a sanctuary for their eggs. The study, the first to systematically evaluate and characterize litter used by octopuses using crowdsourced images, analyzed hundreds of underwater photos posted on social media platforms and image databases or collected by marine biologists using interest groups for divers. The research published in Marine Pollution Bulletin documented 24 species of octopus sheltering inside glass bottles, cans, and even an old battery, burying themselves into a mixture of bottle tops and seashells even carrying plastic items around while still walking with two tentacles to conceal themselves from predators. The deep sea records were extremely interesting because even at great depths, these animals are interacting with the litter. They clearly see that there's a lot of litter around and it can therefore act as a kind of artificial camouflage. It shows their extreme ability to adapt, experts say. They are very intelligent animals and they will use whatever they have at their disposal to continue sheltering or walking around with protection. The octopuses seem to show a preference for unbroken items as well as darker or opaque containers and the most common interaction recorded was using rubbish as shelter. The experts say while these interactions could seem positive for the animals because they are lacking natural shelters like seashells, it's not a good thing to think that the animals may be using litter as shelter because the seashells are gone. Sheltering or laying eggs inside discarded tires, batteries, and plastic objects could also expose octopuses to heavy metals and other harmful chemicals. Wow, well I guess more studies are going to have to be done about that as well. Next article. In Peru, the skull of marine monsters points to a fearsome ancient predator. This article was written by Marco Aquino and Carlos Valdez paleontologists have unearthed the skull of a ferocious marine predator, an ancient ancestor of modern-day whales, they say. This creature once lived in a prehistoric ocean that covered part of what is now Peru, scientists announced last week. The roughly 36-million-year-old well-preserved skull was dug up intact last year from the bone-dry rocks of Peru's Azkuhaye Desert with rows of long, pointy teeth, the experts say. Scientists think the ancient mammal was a basilosaurus, part of the Aquatic cetacean family, whose contemporary descendants include whales, dolphins, and porpoises. Basilosaurus means king lizard, although the animal was not a reptile, though its long body might have moved like a giant snake. The one-time top predator likely measured about 12 meters or 39 feet long, about the height of a four-story building. Yikes. It was a marine monster, said Salis, using the skull, which has already been put on display at the university's museum, and it may belong to a new species of basilosaurus. When it was searching for its food, it surely did a lot of damage, say the experts. Scientists believe the first of these animals evolved from mammals that lived on land some 55 million years ago. About 10 million years after, an asteroid struck just off what is now Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula, wiping out most of life on Earth, including the dinosaurs. Experts explained that when the ancient Basilosaurus died, its skull likely sank to the bottom of the ocean floor, where it was quickly buried and preserved. Back during this age, the conditions for fossilization were very good in this area, the experts say. Wow, that is very interesting indeed. Next article by Allison Snyder is called, Researchers find new details in hidden portraits beneath iconic Picasso paintings. Beneath some of Picasso's iconic paintings, researchers are finding new details about hidden portraits and compositions. The discoveries being presented in a new exhibition offer clues about the artist's materials and process early in his career and how to better conserve his work. The technical studies were able to inform art historical research at a new level. Favaro was part of a team of conservators and scientists that studied three Picassos that are now on exhibition about the artist's blue period. Earlier studies have used imaging techniques to study aspects of these and other paintings on recycled canvases, which Picasso was known to use. The first clue that there was a painting beneath the Blue Room in 1901 was spotted more than 60 years ago. Some of the paint texture reflects brush strokes in a different direction than composition that has ever been seen. A team of researchers from the Phillips, the National Gallery of Art, and other institutions were able to see a portrait of a man, indicators of the brush and strokes and the pigments the artist used. For example, the presence of mercury suggests he was painting with vermilion. Microanalysis of tiny samples of the painting indicate most of blue room is painted directly on top of the portrait, without priming, and that Picasso's palette was becoming more subdued infrared reflectance image transform image from the infrared reflectance spectroscopic image cube showing the portraits of an unknown man beneath Picasso's blue room. The researchers could see forms beneath the right shoulder and forearm of the woman in the crouching beggar woman as well. Using x-ray fluorescence scanning the chemical elements in the painting were mapped revealing information about the stages in which the painting was developed an arm exposed, then later covered. Conservators already knew a landscape painting, its creator unknown, but its range of colors is similar to Picasso's, was under the portrait. But the analysis provided new details about how the hills in the painting later became the back of the crouched woman. A map of the elements in the paint of the soup from 1903 suggests Picasso changed the shape of the bowl offered to a child by a woman, and that he altered the woman's gesture and how her hair fell from her forehead. Other imaging tools suggest the painting was first to still life, parts of it scraped off rather than painted over. The bottom line, there's still more to learn from some of the world's most studied paintings. Wow, that's pretty interesting indeed. Next article I found was titled, Did My Two-Year-Old Just Remember How He Died in a Former Life? Toddler Shocks Mom with Eerie Details of Being an Adult. This article was written by Cassie Morris. A mom... Didn't know what to think when her two year old suddenly declared that he used to be an adult who died trying to find water. And TikTok is totally spooked. Mom and TikToker Kelsey, what else, gained nearly 8 million views and 10,000 comments after she shared her toddler's eerie reincarnation claims. Now, much like the mysteriously British American toddler dubbed the reincarnated Princess Diana by TikTokers, At Kelsey, what else's little boy has people around the world wondering if we've all lived before. Do you think this is a past life memory or just his imagination? Reads one of the captions on the viral video. According to the mom, her two-year-old has always been obsessed with maps ever since he was a baby. But one day his love for navigation took a whole new dimension when he told his parents a strange story. I used to be an adult, he said, but then I sunk and I became a kid recalled the mom, hearing her son's eerie words. When I used to be an adult, I had a map, and I was traveling through the sand to try to find water. But when I found water, I sunk and then became a kid again. Since then, at Kelsey Waddell says her little boy has been recalling details of experiences he's never had before, and she doesn't quite know what to do with the information. Is this a former life or an overactive imagination, she asked. What do I do with this? This is scary, some TikTok viewers weighed in on the comments. Many users seemed to believe in reincarnation and felt that at Kelsey Waddell should encourage her little boy to share more. Ask him as many questions as you can and document his answers, they tell her. He won't remember for much longer. Other TikTokers shared their own experiences with kids' past life claims. When my kid was two, she saw a fire on the news and said, I was in one of those before. I miss my sons. Will I ever see them again? Another says, my son does this too. He told me when I was big, I worked on cars like daddy. Then one day, I went into the woods and didn't come back. Some TikTokers were skeptical, though, of the little boy's claims. Under the age of five, children's imaginations and dreams and reality appear nearly indistinguishable to each other in their mind. Still others thought it doesn't really matter what's true or not. All that matters is that at Kelsey Wood Else encourages her child to share. I think the important question you asked was, what am I supposed to do with this? And that is, listen. Pay attention and be interested in their stories. No matter if this past life stuff or imagination seems weird, he'll be encouraged to share what's on his mind, one user wrote. Others were simply spooked by the tale and didn't know what to make of it. This is scary, one user wrote. When scientists paying yimu went missing in the lop desert in 1980 he left only a note that indicated he went out to look for water another user suggested whether at kelsey what else's son was simply blessed with an active imagination or truly did traverse the globe in a past life as an unknown explorer the family is sure to enjoy many exciting adventures in this life with such a unique little soul by their side wow that's pretty interesting next article ocean waves are glowing neon blue at the California coastline. Here's why. Helena Wagner wrote this article. Southern California ocean waves are glowing bright blue now. The phenomena is called bioluminescence. The dazzling bright color can be spotted at night when waves or swimming dolphins agitate clusters of algae blooms, according to the University of California, San Diego. Many people and photographers took to social media to capture the seemingly magical display at San Diego beaches, which started to glimmer at the beginning of March. Scientists from the Strips Institution of Oceanography don't know how long the red tide will appear. During the day, the red tide is a reddish brown color as the algae bloom concentrates near the surface of the water. The best time to catch a glimpse of the bright neon waves is two hours after the sunset on a dark beach, scientists say. California coast is glowing bright blue again thanks to bioluminescence. Take a look. The bioluminescent organisms made an appearance last year too. One photographer caught Balto the dog on a camera swimming through the colored water. Yes, I remember seeing that when I lived in the San Diego area. It's pretty interesting stuff. So if you have a chance to go check that out and you live in the San Diego area, highly recommended. And speaking of wild ocean stories, here's another one that I found. This one is by Eric Williams, and it's called Mysterious Yellow Plastic Strands on Cape Cod Beaches Lead to Explosive Revelation." When a veteran beach cleanup expert noticed a bloom of yellow plastic tubing along outer cape strands, she began to ask questions. I had never seen it before, said Laura Ludwig, manager of the Center for Coastal Studies Marine Debris and Plastics program. Where is it coming from? Thus began a journey to unravel the stringy mystery. Ludwig first encountered the tubing in September 2021 at Long Point in Provincetown during a beach cleanup. During the days that followed more of the plastic was picked up off beaches in outer Cape Towns. It was mind-blowing how much of the stuff there was, she said in a recent phone interview. The yellow tubing has a thin rope-like appearance and continues to wash up at Cape Cod beaches in varying lengths, from very short, about a millimeter, to 90 feet. Ludwig said it has been found on beaches in Provincetown, Truro, Wellfleet, Orleans, Brewster, and Yarmouth. It has also been found in beaches in Hull, Situate, and beyond. I also found a piece in Newport, Rhode Island last week, said Ludwig. Where's the plastic coming from? So far, Ludwig's beach cleanups and other volunteer efforts have plucked up more than 2,000 feet of tubing from Cape Beaches. Picking up beach debris is no easy task, but determining where it came from can also be a tall order. Because of its sudden appearance, Ludwig figured the tubing must have been related to a new situation, perhaps a recent project or unusual occurrence. She reached out to beach debris colleagues asking for assistance on the mystery. One of those colleagues posted a picture of the tubing on Facebook. According to Ludwig, someone from the United Kingdom said it looked similar to material used in blasting rocks in quarries. The explosive theory led Ludwig to reach out to the US Army Corps of Engineers to see if similar tubing had been used in projects in the region. The answer, according to Ludwig, was yes. The tubing on the beaches came from a Boston Harbor dredging project that began June 2021 and concluded January 22. Known as explosive shock tubing, the yellow plastic strand is used to transmit a signal to explosives. In this case, the explosives were underwater, placed to break up rocks as the harbor channel was deepened. According to Ludwig, the contractor involved with the project did have a containment strategy, with vessels on the surface picking up the tubing as it floated to the surface, but some escaped, likely mixed with rocky debris. Ludwig said both the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the contractors are seeking ways to improve containment on future projects deal with the current situation, Ludwig is organizing a beach cleanup along the Boston Harbor shoreline in collaboration with the Corps and the contractor. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers did not immediately respond to a phone message or an email seeking comments about the debris. According to a press release from the Center of Coastal Studies, the shock tube is made out of a low-density polyurethane, the same plastic used to make grocery bags, and is considered safe for humans to touch but many of the pieces are small enough for birds or other animals to eat and can create health problems if ingested. Cape Cod beachcombers may recall a somewhat similar situation in 2011 when a New Hampshire wastewater treatment plant accidentally released millions of small plastic discs, with many ending up on beaches. Ludwig says she still finds those discs along Cape beaches. Ludwig is working with oceanographers at the Center for Coastal Studies and NOAA's Northeast Fisheries Science Center in Woods Hole on draft models that may help predict where the tubing will come ashore. She's also asking for people to help find the tubing on the beach. Over the years, Ludwig has become more concerned over the amounts of plastic in our region's waters and on the beaches. These are things that never go away, she said. We will find plastic lobster trap tags from the 1990s. Wow. Yeah, that is deeply concerning, isn't it? The next article I have is also a little bit concerning. This one is called Nearly Half of Bald and Golden Eagles in the U.S. Have Chronic Lead Poisoning, Most Likely from Bullet Fragments. This one was written by Aria Fendix. It's a common pattern during hunting season in the winter. Hunters shoot elk or deer, then eagles scavenge the waste. The scavenged meal may have deadly consequences though for eagles according to a study published in the journal Science. The researchers detected high rates of lead poisoning among the two most common types of eagles in the US, bald eagles and golden eagles from 2010 to 2018. Their findings suggest that eagles are ingesting lead fragments from bullets in animal carcasses left behind by hunters. Every single time a lead bullet hits a deer, it fragments into many, many pieces, say research wildlife biologists at the U.S. Geological Survey. It only takes a tiny fragment, something the size of the head of a pin, to kill an eagle. The researchers examined the blood, bone, liver, and feathers of more than 1,200 eagles across 38 U.S. states. Of that sample, 47% of bald eagles and 46% of golden eagles had signs of chronic lead poisoning. Birds with chronic and repeated exposure to lead can develop lesions, weakness while flying, convulsions, or paralysis. What's more, lead poisoning threatens to stymie the growth of the eagle species. The researchers estimated that lead poisoning slowed the annual population growth of bald eagles by 4% and golden eagles by 1% on average. Over a 20 year period, we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of eagles that are being removed from the population. Neither golden eagles nor bald eagles are endangered species at the moment. The U.S. bald eagle population has more than quadrupled since 2009, from 72,000 to 317,000 birds. But the U.S. golden eagle population is still relatively small, around 30,000 birds, and at a risk of declining even further. The role of that lead is probably greater for those golden eagle populations just because these populations are so much smaller and they're in a more precarious situation. Scientists have known about lead exposure in eagles for several decades now. Every so often, eagles end up in a rehabilitation facility. They're sick, and they get x-rayed, and you can see fragments of lead in their digestive tract. But until Thursday's study, researchers hadn't been able to quantify how dangerous or widespread lead exposure was among US eagles. We get samples from Alaska to Florida, from Maine to California, so we really had this wide sample size that is reflective of this nationwide pattern that we're seeing in these birds, say the experts. Adult eagles have higher rates of chronic lead poisoning than younger eagles since they have more opportunities to be exposed over their lifetimes. But several eagles also suffered from acute poisoning, meaning they may have had a brief exposure to high levels of lead. The researchers didn't track whether these birds survived, but some eagles with acute lead poisoning suffered quick deaths, sometimes before developing symptoms. Acute poisoning was more common in winter when eagle species had less access to their standard food sources, like fish, rabbits, and squirrels. In the winter season, these animals become less abundant for both eagle species and their feeding habits change. They start scavenging a lot more. 33% of bald eagles and 35% of golden eagles in the study showed signs of acute lead poisoning. The researchers also ruled out the possibility that eagles had been exposed by getting shot themselves. A small number of the eagles in this study were shot, but in the cases where that shooting occurred, we never took samples from any tissue that could have been exposed. Experts say they expect a lot of hunters to willingly switch from lead to non-lead bullets once they find out they're potentially poisoning animals. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife already requires hunters to use non-lead ammunition like copper bullets. The New York Department of Environmental Conservation and the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services advises hunters to do the same. Wow, that's pretty scary for those populations. Next article is, archaeologists discovered 18,000 ancient Egyptian notepads, which included shopping lists and schoolwork. This article was written by Madeline Buiano. Archaeologists make new and incredible discoveries all of the time, but their latest finding gives us insight into the daily lives of ancient Egyptians, from their shopping list to the type of schoolwork they did. According to the report by the Smithsonian Magazine, researchers excavating the city of Athribis, an ancient settlement in Lower Egypt, had discovered more than 18,000 pieces of inscribed pottery shards. The inked pottery pieces are known as ostraca, an affordable and more accessible alternative to papyrus. The remains of broken jars and other vessels were inscribed by dipping a reed or hollow stick into ink to detail receipts, record trades, lists of names, copy literature, and teach students how to write and draw. A large number of the fragments appear to have originated from an ancient school. In fact, more than a hundred of the ostraca were covered in repetitive writing exercises thought to be a form of punishment for students that misbehaved. There were lists of months, numbers, arithmetic problems, grammar exercises, and a bird alphabet. Each letter was assigned a bird whose name began with that letter. Says Christian Leitz in a statement, Leitz is a professor at the University of Tübingen in Germany and led the excavations alongside Egypt's Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities. Nearly all, or 80% of the pottery pieces, were written in Demotic, an administrative script used during the reign of Cleopatra's father, Ptolemy. Greek is the second most common script, but hieroglyphics, Arabic, and Coptic, a mix of Greek and Egyptian languages, also appear hinting at the city's robust multicultural history. While Athrebus was at the forefront of various excavations for over a hundred years, more rigorous research began in 2003. When the Athribis project was launched, discoveries have included multi-story buildings with staircases and vaults. But unearthing the inscribed pottery is one of the team's most notable findings. The University of Tebougan said it is very rare to find such a large volume of ostraca. A, a similarly sized collection has been discovered only once before. Wow, interesting. And then the last article for the day I thought was pretty interesting as well, and it's somewhat related, but it's 4,000-year-old board game uncovered by archaeologists. Luke Plunkett wrote this one. In December 2021, a team of archaeologists working in Oman made the only type of discovery that would get their work covered on a site like this. They dug up a board game dating back approximately 4,000 years. It's thought to be an ancient ancestor of the game backgammon. The Dig via Ars Technica, was undertaken by the Polish Center of Mediterranean Archaeology at the University of Warsaw, and Oman's Ministry of Heritage and Tourism took place in the Kumera Valley, and made all kinds of cool, for archaeologists anyway, Bronze Age discovery, like some big towers and evidence that settlements were part of the copper trade. As the digs report so enthusiastically recounts, though, the best thing they found was a board game, but the most unexpected discovery is not related directly to economy or subsistence. In one of the rooms we found a board game, beams the project director. The board is made of stone and has marked fields and cup holes. Games based on similar principles were played during the Bronze Age in many economic and cultural centers of that age. Such finds are rare, but several examples are known from India, Mesopotamia, and even eastern Mediterranean basins. The most famous example of a board game was based on a similar principle and is one from the graves of Ur, explains the archaeologist. Like the summary suggests, while the game found here is something of a mystery, it's at very least similar to the royal game of Ur, one of the most famous board games of antiquity and that game has a hell of a story. While the game was discovered a century ago, nobody knew exactly how to play it until the 1980s. Then a curator at the British Museum named Irving Finkel translated a Babylonian clay tablet in the early 1980s that turned out to be a description of the rules. Once the rules had been discovered and people could play the game, it was quickly apparent that the Royal Game of Ur, also known as the game of 20 squares, had either evolved into or been replaced by the game we know today as backgammon. Sadly, the dig did not uncover any bronze shoes or windows. Interesting stuff. I hope you guys have enjoyed the show for today. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email or at entertainingabstracts at gmail.com. And please join us again next week when we talk about more wild stories and interesting articles dealing with science, nature, and all kinds of other cool stuff. Bye, guys.